everybody, it's Dave from the Leader Lab Podcast. I am so excited. My new book, The Myths of Creativity, The Truth About How Innovative Companies and People Generate Great Ideas, is finally published. You can get a copy of the book at your bookseller of choice, or you can get a free copy of it on audiobook from our friends at Audible. Go to audibletrial.com slash lead, register for your free 30-day trial of Audible, and you can even download your first audiobook right from there. Friends, thank you so much for your support leading up to and even after the publication of this book. I could not have done it without you. This is your book just as much as it is mine, and I hope you read the book, enjoy the book, and please let me know your thoughts after you finish it. I'd love to hear them. Thank you so much for all of your support. So, David, who are you and what do you do? Well, um, I am a husband and a father and a professor in the uh, in the metropolis, the Center of Arts and Cultural Progress that is Tulsa, Oklahoma. Uh, and most most recently, I am the author of the new book, The Myths of Creativity. Um, but, you know, this is a little weird to be on the side answering the questions. Uh, who, who are you and why are you asking the questions? <laughs> That's a great question. Uh, well, my name is Soren Kaplan, and uh, I'm the author of Leapfrogging and also a contributor to uh, Leader Lab. And uh, it's great to kind of be on the other side of the uh, microphone here and interviewing you about uh, something I know you've been working on for quite some time and, and have really done an amazing job uh, pulling together in terms of uh, kind of demystifying creativity and innovation. So I want to just dive right in. Um, I, I want to kind of look at one of the quotes that you um, – given your new book, The Myths of Creativity. Um, and you say, Steve, a lot of people have talked about Steve Jobs recently. You said, and quote, unquote, Jobs recognized that great ideas were built from combinations of older ideas and that his interface for the Mac demonstrates this, but paradoxic paradoxically, he was quick to attack those who built from Apple's ideas. So, you know, this is a pretty bold statement. And, you know, I'm just kind of wanting to dig into what's the creativity myth behind this. And didn't Steve Jobs and Apple create the iPhone? Well, so the, the iPhone, yes. The smartphone, no. And even some of the visual elements of the iPhone uh, are, are kind of borrowed. And we'll talk about that in a sec. But this is actually a pattern with Jobs and truthfully with uh, all sorts of creative leaders and people who stand out on our mind is incredibly innovative. It's what I call the originality myth. We tend to believe that these groundbreaking innovations and creative works that happen are, are groundbreaking because there was nothing in past precedent that would lead up to them. They were disruptions. They were wholly original pieces. And, and the truth is that every great idea, every creative work, every breakthrough innovation. It's actually a, a new combination of ideas that are already out there in the ether, if you will, or in the zeitgeist. Um, they're, they're already out there. And so in the case of Apple, you, you actually see this twice. The first is with the personal computer. Um, it's a well-documented but still sadly rarely known fact that despite Jobs' best intent to get it to look like Microsoft copied Apple, uh, Microsoft and Apple both copied Xerox. And there was a computer that Xerox was working on in their Palo Alto research facility that both Jobs and, to a lesser extent, um, Bill Gates knew about. Um, Jobs famously uh, toured the, the Park plant, saw this this computer with what was called a, still called a graphical user interface, that desktop metaphor we're all familiar with, whether you use a Mac operating system or Windows. Um, 
the, the folks at Xerox Park were the, the people to actually invent that. Jobs left those, those tours, went back to Apple and said, here's the future, here's what we're doing. And, and to his credit, he made it better. But the ideas were already out there uh, and he borrowed from them, combined them with other technologies, combined with the knowledge of design that Apple and, and Steve Jobs did so well. And, and most importantly, combined in such a way that they could bring the price tag down to the point where it was affordable. Uh, and Gates actually did the same thing. In fact, there's a funny, uh, funny interchange that was documented between Jobs and Bill Gates, where, as, as we know, Steve Jobs, to his, uh, to his last breath, kept saying that, that Windows just copied the Mac. Um, and there was a time where, where Jobs vented his frustration to Gates at that and said, you know, you, you're ripping us off and, it, and it's not fair, it's unjust. And Gates had this wonderful quote. He says, I don't look at it that way, Steve. I look at it like we broke, we, I broke in to our neighbor Xerox's house and found that you had already stolen the television. Uh, so basically Gates is admitting like, yes, we copied, we stole, we borrowed, um, but we did it from the same source. It's not like you copied copied them, then I copied you. We both went to the same source. And you see this um, in the iPhone. It's interesting when you look at the iPhone keynote, which is you know well regarded as a great presentation. It is. I don't want to detract anything away from Jobs' genius. But one of the things that's interesting is he keeps saying, we at Apple developed this multi-touch technology and blah, 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 blah. There were actually, there was a TED Talk. Uh, it was either a year or two years beforehand where they demonstrated multi-touch technology. They showed the way you could use two fingers to zoom in and do all this different stuff. Apple bought that patent, but that patent was developed by somebody else. And then even in the early stages of designing uh, Apple products, particularly the iPhone, you can see uh, a lot of copying from some famous designers in the past. There's a really cool thing. Um, I'm blanking on the name of the person, but if you look up the original design for the iPhone's calculator, and then you type in the Braun calculator design, you'll see that it basically is an on-screen version of a calculator that was designed in the 1960s with a very simple interface, gray and orange buttons. It's a, it's a mimic. And that's not to detract away. In fact, all um, you know, there's the, there's a quote that we misattribute to Picasso about good artists copy, great artists steal. Every every breakthrough creative person, every highly innovative individual knows that ideas are the raw material that we make new ideas from. And it's a reality that we just kind of have to accept. And once we do, we can actually enhance our own creativity because we remove the pressure to come up with something wholly original. And we realize, okay, the more I expose myself to a lot of stimuli, the more creative I have because the more access I have to those ideas. Yeah, great, great points, David. And, you know, it's kind of interesting because when you look at what you just described, you, you can you can kind of argue that a lot of those ideas existed already. And it's just about figuring out which ones go together and then how to take them to the next level and make them better, which has a lot of implications for people who want to go after various innovative, you know, products or services. And the myth is really that you have to come up with this wholly new thing that no one's ever thought about before, which I think ends up stifling innovation in a big way because it just feels so daunting. Absolutely. It's a lot of pressure. So, you know, I'm, I'm curious where you're, you know, you've got um, a number of different myths that really kind of fly in the face of conventional wisdom. Where did your, where did the idea for the book come from in the first place? And, you know, kind of the question is, you know, have we all been practicing innovation by kind of doing these myths and doing the wrong things for so long? 
<laughs> so I'll say it in true to form on the originality myth. It was it was one part uh, brand new idea and discovery and another couple parts copying. Right. So I'm not the first person to think about that the way we think about certain things is wrong and to kind of take on that myth buster genre. Right. In fact, I'm not even the first person to do it in this domain. I'm actually a huge fan of Scott Birkin's work on the myths of innovation. But where I think Birkin stuck mostly to technological innovation, I saw it on a wider scale in how we manage people who have to do knowledge work or have to be creative on demand in any field that goes beyond just technology. Um, are, are we doing all of these things uh, wrong? I, I wouldn't say so. I think a lot of us are for sure. And when I was doing, when I was in graduate school and doing my doctoral dissertation, this is when I began to notice it. I was steeped in the literature on how to manage creatives, how creativity really flourishes, what it takes to develop and manage an, an innovative new product. And then I was looking at practice and what people were saying about it in the popular literature and even surveyed and interviewed lots of middle managers and senior leaders and found all these areas where the conventional wisdom about managing creatives or the creative process was wrong didn't line up with the research. But I'll tell you, for everything I found that was going wrong, what I also found was one or two outstandingly creative companies who were doing it right, who were in line with the research, whether they knew it or not. And those are thankfully the, the companies I get to end each chapter of the book with are the people doing it right. Your companies like Continuum and IDEO and Pixar, I'm, I'm huge fans of their processes and their processes are in line with the research. What's interesting is that at some point we moved away, though we can see those companies as creative, we moved away from looking at what they do in terms of research to make their creative process flourish and we sort of invented explanations because it seemed so mysterious. And that's how these myths of creativity developed. And, and it, it's sort of like anything else. When you have the proof, when you have the evidence, when you have an empirical scientific method that can tell you, no, this is how it really works, then it's time to abandon the mythology and time to move forward into an evidence-based solution. Well, you know, one of the, as I was reading your book, one of the things that kept coming up over and over for me is that a lot of these myths are really embedded in the fabric of our of our culture in the United States, if not the culture of innovation globally. I mean, you think about the the light bulb over your head kind of notion that you know you get this huge idea in the shower that's a true true breakthrough, and then it all flows from there. Um, you know, I guess where what I was really impressed with, which was you know, unlike a lot of books on creativity. You really steeped every kind of myth. You debunked the myth through empirical research and examples. Um, and, you know, and you really came at it kind of from a scientific perspective. You know, kind of what's, what's behind that? I mean, you really, it seems like you just did an extraordinary amount of research uh, for each of your 11 myths. Well, it was certainly, um, uh, it was certainly a, a lot of research. And, and really, I should say the uh, the... The first of the myths, when you say 11, the first of the myths has been around for a long time, and that's just the idea that there is a mythology around creativity, which is wrong. There's a scientific method, 50 years of research behind it. The others are sort of newer and an attempt to uh, attempt to explain all those things. And, and really what it is is I think our first reaction when we see something we can't explain is usually not to research it, unfortunately. We look at things that seem mysterious and we try and use ideas or combinations of older ideas, right? We try and use our past experience and our limited perception to invent an explanation, right? And this has huge implications for, you know, the, the light bulb moment that you brought up. 
what what feels like a light bulb moment of a sudden inspiration, and we use that terminology. In fact, there's research that we even kind of make up explanations for how we came up with ideas when they're perfectly good logical explanations. They're just blinded to us, right? It's called confabulation. Um, people do it all the time, and that's what gives birth to this idea of the eureka moment. In reality, what's going on is you're in a period of incubation. You're not really thinking about the problem. The ideas are still in your subconscious floating around, and then you stumble across a connection Sometimes that connection turns out to be right. A lot of times we come out of incubation, we feel like we have this grand idea, and then, of course, it doesn't work, and we just sort of forget about all those times, too. Over time, as we tell and retell that story, we usually take ourselves out of it because that feeling of surprise was so um, pungent that we start to say, oh, it obviously came from somewhere else, somewhere outside of me. And you see that in the way that we even explain historical events like Newton and the apple or um, Archimedes in the bathtub, right? The key players in that story are no longer Newton and Archimedes. It's the apple and the bathtub, right? And, and what does that say for the rest of us who don't sit under apple trees or take baths when we have a problem? Does, does that mean creative insight is off limits to us? No, of course not. That's not what the research says. But that is what the stories we tell ourselves and, and tell our children and and build a whole system of beliefs around creativity around that, you know, it, it might have worked halfway decently for a while, but we have a perfectly decent explanation that works better now. And it's time to move towards so that. So tell me specifically about the brainstorming myth. I mean, we all know and love brainstorming. It's been around for years and years. Most people think that brainstorming's an essential part of the innovation process, but you say that's not necessarily how it works. So what's this myth all about? And how does this story of Sam Adams' beer help debunk it? <laughs> well, well, we'll hit Sam Adams in a second, but you actually unknowingly said it right. Um, there's some nuance to the brainstorming myth. Brainstorming is, I think, an essential part of the innovation process. The key word there being process. I think the myth is that if you have a problem, you just need to get a bunch of people in the room, brainstorm, pick one of the ideas on the wall, and boom, you're done. Right. And when we say when most people say, oh, let's go brainstorm ideas, et cetera, that's what they're looking for. Right. We, we buy into this idea and it's, and it's a true statement. Linus Pauling was right. But we buy into Linus Pauling's quote. The best way to get good ideas is to have lots of ideas. The best way to get good ideas is to start with lots of ideas, combine them, test them refine them, all that sort of stuff. There's a larger process that needs to happen. Although ironically, sometimes, and this is what the Sam Adams lesson proves, sometimes it's just about doing all of the work first and letting the insight sort of happen. So um, Jim, Jim Koch is a great example of this in that if you look at the creative process, there's usually some research and a problem statement that has to happen. You really have to understand it. Then you get into rapid idea generation. Then you refine and test and you develop it further. And what's interesting is in the case of Sam Adams Beer and Jim Coke, they didn't actually need to do any of that brainstorming session. Now, down the road, they might have done it with marketing ideas, et cetera, but, but Sam Adams Beer basically came out of a discussion with Jim Coke and his father. Jim Coke was a, um, a consultant for Boston Consulting Group, decided he wanted to go into the family business of beer, told his father. His father told him he was crazy because this was at a time where all of the microbreweries that had established in the 1800s and early 1900s were being bought, gobbled up or run out of business, and we were at the big three. If you weren't one of the big three breweries, you didn't stand a chance. And amidst all of this is Jim Coke saying, I want to go back into the family business of beer, which had been good to the early Coke family and bad to the more recent one. And what happens is he realizes he's a consultant after all. He's great at running strategy. He's great at finding the research, understanding the nature of the problem. 
Um, and he has this insight, like a lot of people would probably say, he has this insight when he goes out one day for a drink and he's sitting at the bar and there's another guy at the bar. That's it. It's just the two of them. So the story goes sitting at the bar and the other gentleman orders a, a Heineken. And Jim Coke says, you know, why, why'd you order Heineken? Just curious, why do you drink Heineken? And the man says, well, I like imported beer. And Jim Coke says, okay, well, well, how does it taste? And the man says, it tastes skunky, which skunky is, a, is an industry term for when beer spoils. It develops this kind of a spoiled taste. They call it that it tastes skunky. And it happens a lot with imported beer, particularly imported beer that is shipped in light bottles instead of dark bottles. And so all of a sudden, Jim Coke has this insight that his competitors – are not the big three. If he's going to do this and do it right, his competitors are imports. So what he needs to do is basically find a way to compete on old world imagery and high quality um, with the import market instead of competing with the d domestic market. And in fact, you actually can sort of still see this insight if you go to a lot of restaurants. You still see Sam Adams Lager listed at the import price beer, not the domestics, right? Um, and it's true true to form of what Jim Coke realized. The, the reason I point that out is because it's a great example of there's a large creative process at work in, in behind most innovations and most great creative works. And in the case of Sam Adams Beer and Jim Coke, that process had already been followed and so they didn't need to develop into a period of rapid idea generation the way we always do. When the when the right pieces connect each other and the right insight came, all the work was done on the tail end. And truthfully, there was a lot of work to do uh, moving forward to find the right formula, to test around marketing, to refine it, all of that sort of thing. But coming up with the idea is really, you know, they used to say knowing is half the battle. Coming up with the idea is half, if not even less, of the battle. There's a lot more involved in the process. And, and brainstorming, if, if it's practiced right, can be a part of that process and can work really, really well. But just because you got a bunch of people in a room and threw out ideas on a whiteboard, by no means doesn't mean you're done. That's that's a great point uh, and one that I've seen over and over and over again. Um, and let me kind of you know dive into one of the other myths that I think relate to you know kind of getting a bunch of people in the room. Um, you talk about one of your myths called the cohesive myth, and you, you know you basically say that conflict is important for creativity, which you know it is kind of somewhat intuitive, but also a little counterintuitive when you hear about, you know, conflict management, conflict resolution, you know, a lot of teams, global teams kind of dealing with conflict that are always people trying to resolve conflict. Um, you know, tell me a little bit about what you mean by that. And, you know, especially I'm, I'm interested in the, in the example you gave with Evernote um, and how Evernote, uh, which a lot of us use uh, on our mobile devices these days, represents this myth buster. Oh yeah, no, absolutely. I, I love I love Evernote. I make the joke all the time that I have it so close to my face that you could call Evernote my pre prefrontal cortex. If you think about the biology of the brain, then exactly where that pre prefrontal cortex would be. Um, and, and this one, this, the cohesive myth, actually, I think comes out of the brainstorming myth. You know, chief among Alex Osborne's original four rules for brainstorming is that you you shouldn't have conflict. You should not judge ideas. Uh, you, you just want to go for quantity and everything is fair game and then you can judge them later. And there's some nuance there. The, the truth is I'm not going to go so far as to say that we've debunked that idea, but the truth is it, it, we don't know. Uh, there, there's research supporting the idea that conflict is, is good for idea generation. Um, certainly, there's a lot of research that says that conflict is good for the larger creative process. And that's where I really sort of want to hone in and, and really because – 
Ultimately, if you're in an organization and there's no conflict, it can mean one of two things. Either everyone is so focused on fitting in that they're not willing to have new and challenging ideas, and that sort of groupthink sets in, or no one's actually coming up with those new ideas. So they're either self-censoring the ideas they have, or they're legitimately not generating any new ideas. And that's a problem, because as we look at the larger creative process, if ideas are combinations of pre-existing ideas, if everything we've talked about thus far is true, then you're going to have some task-focused conflict. You're going to have some people arguing over ideas. You're going to have some people needing to fight to prove their ideas. And more importantly, that conflict is going to lead to a refinement of ideas. And really, that's what we see at Evernote. Evernote actually started as two different companies, one called Ribbon and one called Evernote. I'm guessing they, when they merged, they chose that Evernote was a better name, and I, I agree. Um, but when they merged, they basically found out about each other. They found out that they were both working on this super secret note-taking and cloud-based external brain project that would that would expand memory. And so they decided rather than fight each other in the market, they would join forces and fight each other inside the same company. And that's really what happened is they looked at a way to merge the two products and the two business models. They fought over everything. And you listen to it, you can see interviews with the CEO when he talks about this. Uh, that actually made the product so much better because only the best ideas won out. Only the people who had solid way of, ways of doing things got to the green light to manage that aspect of the project. And in the end, even the when there weren't a best idea, just the conflict between the two moderate ideas created one better idea out of that sort of conflict. So we need conflict. There, there's, a, there's a caveat there. We need task-focused conflict. We can't have conflict devolve into personal arguments. But to the extent that we can keep it focused on the project at hand and refining and making that project better, we can dramatically enhance the overall innovativeness and the overall creativity of what we're working on by introducing a little healthy task focused conflict. No, that's a, that's a, that's a great point. And so, you know, in your book, your first chapter is the creative mythology. And you talked a little bit about that. And then you follow it on with 10 specific myths that, you know, get in the way of creativity and innovation. Um, you say that the, what you call the mousetrap myth may be one of the most damaging to business innovation. Tell us why that is and what that what that's all about. So um, if you look at most books about creativity and creative thinking, they're all focused on that, how to, ha how to come up with better ideas. I, I should – a caveat there. There's this other great book called Leapfrogging. It doesn't cover that. But your, your standard sort of creativity book, 101 Techniques for Creative Problem Solving, blah, 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 blah. In fact, I think that's actually the name of a real book. So oops, um, didn't mean to single anybody out there, but I guess I did. They're all focused on the idea of how do we enhance our idea generation, and they're not necessarily focused on um, the process. And they don't even go so far uh, as to say it's not just about the process, but it's about the organizational culture, etc. Very few books on creativity do that. And the mousetrap myth sort of hones in on that. It comes out of, I call it the mousetrap myth because there's this famous saying, if you build a better mousetrap, the world will beat a path to your door. Not actually all that true. Um, in fact, history is filled with sort of metaphorical mousetraps that the world did not necessarily accept. Xerox, we talked about earlier, invented the personal computer, never wanted to implement it. Kodak actually invented the digital camera that led to their own bankruptcy. They created their own demon, in essence, didn't see the market potential, so they didn't develop it. Even in the arts world, we look at people like Igor Stravinsky, whose Rites of Spring uh, ballet actually caused a riot when it debuted to the public. Right? Nobody, nobody uh, wanted to see it. There were people who fought over whether or not this could be counted as art. Right? Now, it's in Fanta Walt Disney put it into Fantasia. We show it to our children. It's really not riot-inducing. But 
Um, it just demonstrates that when we're presented with new ideas, there's sort of a psychological bias against them. For an idea to be creative, for an idea to be great and a breakthrough innovation, it has to be new and it has to be useful. And we use the old mindset, the old status quo to judge what's useful. So by definition, new ideas, we've already stacked, against, we've already stacked the deck against them. Because if we're using what's old to determine what's useful, then what's new doesn't necessarily fit into that framework. Now, inside of organizations, this is really devastating. Because what happens for an idea that happens in the bottom or lower levels of an organization, it has to move up to a certain level in the hierarchy to gain approval. And at every level, there's a person suffering from a bias against creative ideas who, if they don't greenlight it, the idea dies. So you need... Uh, you know, several yeses and only one no. It creates what uh, one of my good friends Dave Owens calls a hierarchy of no in an organization, right? Because all it takes is one no to kill those great ideas. And as we know, there's a psychological bias against them. In, in fact, this bias, the researchers who are coming up with this bias, closed their paper, and I, and I totally agree with this, saying that perhaps what we need in organizations, we don't actually need more creative ideas. So all of those books that are around just coming up with more and more ideas, perhaps we don't need that. What we need to do is get better at recognizing the great ideas we already have. And some of the most innovative companies in the world, they have processes in place to better develop and better hear out all of those creative ideas so that they don't get lost in that hierarchy of no. I think that's a great point. Um, I see that over and over again, that you know, there's this search for the better mousetrap. And when in actuality, some of those answers are right in front of your face and also could include some of those combinations you talked about that you just, you know, kind of span different silos of the organization, put things together and you've got your breakthrough. Um, and I think that's a big, uh, big opportunity that's oftentimes missed. So let me shift a little bit away from the book to the personal. Um, tell me a little bit about what you personally are reading now. So I am uh, – right now I'm actually just finishing up uh, Malcolm Gladwell's latest, The David and Goliath. I've, I've already read a lot of controversy around it, typical of a Malcolm Gladwell book. Um, if for, uh, the, the psychologist in me is kind of like, oh, okay, he's, he's not really presenting both sides of the research. But the storyteller in me is still absolutely fascinated with him. I think no one does – um, a better job of taking even psychological studies and telling them into a story uh, as someone like Gladwell. So his newest book is called David and Goliath. I'm, I'm really enjoying it. It's a, it's a story of sort of the underdogs and the misfits who don't necessarily fit in with the established culture and how they break through and win. Um, and I really like that. There's actually a lot coming down the pipe that I see around this idea of misfits and underdogs that I'm really looking forward to. I know, I know next year, early on in next year, there'll be this book called The Misfit Economy um, that I've, I've spoke with the authors about, et cetera, that I'm really looking forward to. So I'm kind of fascinated with that idea uh, of underdogs and misfits and all that sort of stuff. And, and you know, when, when Gladwell sort of publishes a new book, you pretty much have to read it, whether you like him or not, because you're going to have to, you're going to have to talk about him, uh, case in point, in an interview um, or, or whenever, you're going to have to be able to talk about it. So I'm currently reading my way through that I think next on the docket is actually Todd Henry's new book, Die Empty. Um, Todd's the uh, author of The Accidental Creative. Uh, his new book's more sort of emotion motivational. How do you make sure you're doing your best work all the time? How do you make sure when you go to your grave, you, you don't have your best work still in you? So not necessarily the most evidence-based, most psych-oriented, but I tend to sort of alternate back and forth between the two of those. Well, and that is why, uh, if anyone can't tell, you are very well-read in the creativity and innovation literature which is, I think, why uh, you've incorporated a lot of that great research into your own book. Um, so tell me a little bit about what's next for you. 
So, I mean, by by no means is, is the, the story of the myths of creativity done. Uh, I was not the first person to say we need to debunk these myths. I probably won't be the last person, but I will uh, scream it for the from the rooftops until my voice goes uh, hoarse. I'm also looking into a lot of different um, different subjects. In, in the book, I talk a little bit about design thinking. I've become kind of fascinated with that as a larger creative process. Uh, and truthfully, I think there's some opportunity there in that we we tend to look at design thinking in the past as product based or even you know some to some extent services based and i kind of am interested in the question of how far can we push this as a creative thinking process and how how far can we sort of um how far can we bring it into organizations beyond just product marketing and that sort of a thing? So kind of fascinated with that. Of course, I'm always looking at for topics that are at the intersection of leadership, innovation and strategy. So um, I don't know what that holds in the horizon. Uh, in the meantime, I'm kind of fascinated with that sort of design thinking method. And, and of course, still shouting from the rooftops this idea that we need to debunk the myths of creativity and and then in between then you know probably need to log some more and more family time uh, as you know from writing your book there's uh, y- your children tend to think of you they picture your face and they picture a closed door with you behind it right so i'm um, looking forward to be able being able to log that uh, as well Right. Well, thank you, David. And I just want to reiterate, great book. Really appreciated getting a preview of that before it's out. The Myths of Creativity, the Truth About How Innovative Companies and People Generate Great Ideas. A must read on Amazon and anywhere else you can get books. Oh, thank you so much. And and while you're in there, you know, you're going to need more than $25 to get free shipping anyway. So pick up a copy of Leapfrogging uh, from Soren. It was a, it was a great read too. And I think Soren and I set the record among creativity books for the most creative book covers. So, you know, we got that going for us. Yes, we do. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you.